the sainted stripes of Tom Baker's scarf. It's the pirate planet. Now, for many years, for me, this was a missing story because there was no novelization. Before we had DVDs and videos, I would do a chronological read-through of all of the Target novels that were available. And I was always sad when I finished the Ribos operation because there was no pirate planet. So um, I understand there is now a novelization. It finally made it through in about 2011, I believe, which is very late. But I always felt sad, especially because it was a Douglas Adams story. And Douglas Adams, probably my one of my favorite 20th century authors, um, he taught me so much about language. He, he was so playful with it. His wordplay was amazing. The dialogue is sparkling and it's how you wish that you're, you yourself could talk in real life. And uh, so the fact that this story, a Douglas Adams story, was missing from the record to all intents and purposes for so many years was uh, extremely sad for me and I really love being able to watch it again now. And now there's an audio version as well which is getting a vinyl release for Record Store Day. I haven't heard the audio release but Simon has. I have. Um, yeah, I was very surprised to find that I'd got a copy of this, which I don't remember ever buying, but I'm sure I must have done. And I'm not sure before the weekend I'd ever actually listened to it because it didn't ring any bells. And I was there thinking, oh, um, Mary Tam must must have uh, narrated this one. Um, but actually it came out just after she died because it starts with a little... Um, tribute to her in her memory um from john leeson just to say this this release is um is dedicated to the memory of mary tam which was just a a really lovely little thing so so yeah it's very much in the vein of the uh narrated audios that we've got for the missing episode so there's john leeson very quickly trying to fill in what's going on on screen in between the scenes and but because Again, um, like Denise said, the dialogue in this story is so memorable and vivid that actually it's quite—it's a really good one to listen to as a story because you're li- actually listening to the dialogue and not thinking about what's going on on screen. You're listening to what Douglas Adams is saying. And, yeah, it's, it comes over really well, I thought. And is John Leeson doing that in character or in his, usual, his normal voice? Is normal voice, sadly. It would have been great to have it narrated by K9. I wish someone would do that. That would be amazing. (laughs) The Doctor Master and Romana were busy. (laughs) So I got into the show. This is uh, Jason from Brooklyn, by the way. I got into the show in late 1984, as I've mentioned elsewhere, with uh, the Peter Davison years. My PBS station was airing 25 minutes a night at 7 p.m. So they cycled around to Tom Baker, February 85, and they probably got to to Pirate Planet by, I'm going to say, late June, early July. I know this because Stones of Blood is the story that aired on July 4th that year. So it would have been the end of June that I saw Pirate Planet for the first time. Now, you got a picture. This is an 11-year-old kid in 1985 who was given one VHS tape by his father to tape Doctor Who if he weren't home. 
but I didn't always get to tape it because I got second dibs if my father needed the VCR for something else, which was often. So for whatever reason... Sounds familiar. Yeah, very familiar, I'm sure. So I never got to watch part one of Pirate Planet. And like Denise says, there was no novelization. So all I knew about the story was from the L'Officier program guide. So I sat down, and the very first part of Pirate Planet that I saw was part two. And I was quickly adrift because the part two cliffhanger makes no sense if you have not seen part one. So it took me – I'm serious. It wasn't until you know, somewhere in the year 2000s that I realized, oh, wait, that's the guy that we saw for 10 seconds in part one coming back at the part two cliffhanger. I think Prelix was his name. So it was a long time before the story made any sense to me. That being said, when you're 11 years old, the pirate is the the pirate captain is the perfect villain, and he's a lot of fun. So I enjoyed the story without ever understanding it. Yeah, I think for me it would have been when the the VHS release came out, and uh, I think they they probably released key to time ones quite consecutively because I remember the spines all matched up, didn't they? They're all. They didn't have that's the, right. the black yeah, spines. Yeah, it was two a month, wasn't it? I think over yeah, that's right. every other month. And whereas all the others had the black spine, they, this had a kind of multicolored spine with a segment of the key to time in a, in a kind of arch uh, across the top of them, sort of spanning all the all the different covers. Um, but I always think there's, there's always more to this story than I remember. You know, you've got sort of a like a mental thumbnail. And I, I always just think of the, uh, the captain shouting and the polyphase avatron, but then you watch it, you think, Oh yeah, the mentiads are in it. Uh, and then it's Queen Zancia as well. And there's a lot location filming, which, so even watching it again, sort of slightly took me by surprise. Cause I always just think of the, the bridge set and the, the town, which obviously is in a studio as well. So it's yeah, it's, there's always got more depth than I than I actually remember. Just thinking about it casually, there's uh, there's a lot going on, isn't there? Yes, and I mean visually, it's also very striking as well. Um, I mean, the dialogue carries it along. Little bit of extra narration along along the way, but uh, there's such wonderful details. I mean, if you notice the mat shot above the main village, is basically. Isha's Castrovalva, isn't it, up there? There's some dodgy staircases and things like that up there. And then you've got the beautiful little visual gags, like um, the doctor's got a bag of jelly babies and he pulls one out with his teeth like he's pulling the pin out of a hand grenade (laughs) before he throws it onto the air car. I mean, that is a beautiful thing to watch. It really is. And um, then there's the costumes, the wonderful golden boots, you know, and... uh, it's um, and there's all these tiny little details that uh, really, really, I hope that the audio does it justice. It's funny you mentioned about the multicolored DVD spines in the UK because this is, I think, unique to the DVD line. Is they rushed out a box set of Key to Time solely for the American market in 2002 or 2003, and they had audio commentaries on each story but for Pirate Planet they only had an audio commentary from I think Pennant Roberts who was the director and Bruce Purchase who was the pirate captain Uh, so there was no regular on the audio commentary. Later on the UK got a proper release with lots of extra features and making of documentaries but the original release for the US was kind of on the 
vanilla side, and I don't think it sold very well because they never did any vanilla US only release ever again. No, we were all very jealous that you got that long before we did. <laughs> uh, and then when the DVD box set came out here, it was uh, limited edition. Because um, I remember, um, as I did when the Blu-ray collection started, I sort of left it too long, and then I was uh, struggling to uh, to get hold of one. Um, by the time I realised, uh, yeah, that uh, that they were starting to sell out. Uh, yeah, it was the VHSs that had the multicolored spines that didn't match those. But yeah, the uh, and then the Blu-ray set kind of opened out. Um, I suppose it's supposed to be a bit like the Keats Time or something, wasn't it? The shape of it when it's uh, when it's opened out. Yeah, that was impressive package that was i remember loving lovingly opening that to see what was inside and yeah that was good this one occurred to me saying about the details something occurred to me this time watching it um after watching the reboss operation they they could have tied the stories together a little bit by having jethric as one of the precious stones that they find lying around in the streets at the start um you feel like now it's the sort of thing that would get picked up a little bit and have a little bit more continuity between them because it's such a huge thing in the previous story that it's about a precious stone that uh, that would have been a nice kind of uh, through line, I think. So, yeah, it could have been a nice misdirection for the audience as well who might be expecting that to be one of the segments again. Yeah, definitely. There's a little bit of misdirection though because if you think about the Key to Time season, every segment of the Key to Time is disguised as a fabulous jewel or a symbol of great power. You have the Jethric, which is the most valuable stone in the universe. You have the Great Seal of Diplos, which confers magical powers upon its wearer, who's probably an agent of the Black Guardian already. You have the Good Luck statue in front of the Count's house in Gracht. And then you have the Holy Relic of the Swampies. And then, of course, Princess Astra is the uh, seventh princess of the seventh house of the seventh uh, dynasty of the... uh, seventh, uh, what have you, uh, of Atrios. But the planet Calufrax is cold and uninhabited and unattractive. It's the only segment of the key to time that is not pretending to be something important or valuable. I don't know if Douglas Adams did that on purpose to offset the rest of the season or if that was just accidental but it's a neat little factoid that for a story that's about wealth and jewels Caliphrax is kind of worthless mm. when you read about the early drafts it was going to be a jewel I think set into a ring and some reading this in the complete history today there's some really interesting stuff about about the early drafts yes the script was very different wasn't it as Douglas Adams first produced it but uh Anthony Reid made a lot of changes to it. Yeah, and I, th- I feel like it's quite odd for Douglas Adams. He was—he seems like quite a Doctor Who fanboy because he's always trying to work Time Lord mythology, as he did in Shadow as well, um, Time Lord mythology and stuff. And one of his, like his second draft, had uh, the the nurse character as the master's daughter. Oh and then, wow! But then, and then would have turned out, and then a, a subsequent draft had her as the master, so a female master, many, many times. Yeah, before, before that became a reality. And it was the uh, ring with a jewel in it that the doctor recognizes that she's wearing. And that, that almost feels a little bit like the master's ring in the 
tenant era as well, the, the sim masters things. It feels like uh, these kind of ideas are sort of left lying around to be, uh, to be picked up later. It's funny because I was at Gallifrey 1 in Los Angeles a little over a week ago, and I can tell you for a fact there are still people upset about there being a female master. I heard somebody on a master-themed panel give the coded complaint, well, Missy would have worked better if she was playing a separate character. Imagine if there had been a female master in 1977. That would have been amazing. Would have saved us a lot of teeth gnashing over Missy. That's a huge... Yeah. In fact, that's my new headcanon. Queen Zaxia is the master's abandoned daughter. The character works a lot better if you think about it that way. That's why she wants to live forever. Like her dad. Makes sense, doesn't it? So, yeah, and... It- I remember um, Anthony Reid talking about this script and saying that he could see all this potential in it, but Douglas Adams just kept throwing big ideas that they couldn't afford to do. Wasn't there something about um, some kind of machine that ate everybody's aggression or something that was in it? And they said, oh, no, 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 that's a bit too similar to what we've done in The Sunmaker, so we can't Mm -hmm. have that. But he was just literally throwing out these ideas. like He'd got his first, first big commission and... Well, I've just got this brain fizzing with with stuff that I want to get out, and he's going to throw it at his first scripts and um, whatever. I think there was um, a memo, wasn't there, from um, Graham MacDonald, who was the head of serials, who said, you can't make this. There is no way you can make this story on a Doctor Who budget. And the production team just said, well, we're going to try. Mm-hmm. And Pendant Roberts was convinced he could do it, and he did. So yeah, it's it's a very good thing, really. Yeah, you hear about Douglas Adams. He was he'd submitted a few scripts over the years, and he'd done the the Doctor of the Cricket Men and and different ideas. And then just as he finally gets one commissioned, he also gets the radio series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, commissioned. And then suddenly he's got more work <laughs> than um, you know, by all accounts, quite an undisciplined writer could. <laughs> could handle. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, he wasn't great with deadlines. It's quite. Uh, quite notorious for it yeah there's a great douglas adams quote about deadlines that i always use i love deadlines i love the whooshing sound they make as they go past yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah you see see, packed full of ideas and and the idea of the 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 planet materializing around other planets and and sucking all the resources out is such a big concept isn't it and when it a couple of years ago when it was in the news that they were talking about, you know, they might be able to design sort of spacecraft that will go out. And if there's a, you know, kind of a, a comet or a meteor passing through the solar system, that it'll be able to sort of land on it and, and drill into it and, uh, and you'll kind of bring back minerals and resources. That was the first thing I thought of was uh, it's like kind of the, uh, the, the pirate planet thing coming true, isn't it? Well, yeah. yes, and I wouldn't put it past us. I wouldn't put yeah. it past us at all no. by the shiny satin shirt of Disco Romana. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fabulous well, outfit, isn't it? That is, yeah, it's really good. Well, I, I really like the sort of misdirection. Uh, Romana, who is very very smart, I think she's worked it out and worked out that um, the captain just um, pilots or dematerializes the mountain and takes that with him, and yeah. that's all it is. And then it's just this sort of gradual increase in scale as you go up, and then realising that the captain and the nurse have committed such huge, monstrous, universal crimes by taking these planets that are inhabited and 
crushing them and just using them for their resources just to keep the nurse alive or Queen Zangsia alive is just yeah, it's what a phenomenal idea. And as you say, for for a kid watching it, the captain is such a big fun character, but then you watch it as an adult and it does have kind of big themes as a as a you know capitalist society because all the all the inhabitants of the of the planet are just like no it's fine we just get all this stuff and we don't really worry about where it comes from and it's it is yeah it's like we were back in like 2016 and stuff isn't it (laughs) (laughs) life has changed a lot since then that's it and, and you know the the you know the toll that it'll take on you know on the planet that you know drive cars and and uh and you know kind of import stuff and go on holidays and, and that type of thing it's uh it's ahead of its time again in that in that sense of that kind of message i think i think my favorite line in the entire story and there's a lot of really good lines in there but douglas adams is 24 years old when he writes this he's not douglas adams yet he's still copying robert holmes and there's a line in there that is so robert holmes it hurts somebody asks the doctor if uh, all these jewels on the street is wrong and the doctor goes, wrong? It's an economic miracle. Of course it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Douglas Adams, I mean, he uh, often brought in sort of big economic theories like, you know, the Magratheans manufacturing planets and there's an economic crash. And so they all go into hibernation until everybody else has rebuilt the economy enough so that they can afford their rather expensive services again. You know, he, he had a good good handle on this stuff. Yeah, my favourite is always the Chew Event Horizon, where, mm. where where um towns will eventually get so many shoe shops and people will be buying so many shoes that there'll actually be a layer of shoes on the planet's mm. crust because they're all rotting <laughs> down because that's it's all no that will end up on your high Economically street. viable to buy anything except shoes. Exactly. Yes. I'm glad that didn't come to pass. You know. But, uh... <laughs> This is another idea reading about in the complete history that he had early on at the sort of planning stage of his story, which which becomes Magrathea in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is that Africa is the segment of the key to time. So he has to go to uh, the equivalent sort of planet building place to uh, to order a new Africa <laughs> <laughs> and uh, charges it to the Time Lords. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> Yeah, you can see how, yeah, say so he's just coming up with all these incredible ideas and then the ones that don't get used for this, they're all all tucked away at the back of his head, aren't they, and uh, reappear elsewhere. Well, of course, there's never, I'll never be cruel to an electron in a particle accelerator again, which is, of course, when he goes through the transmat beam for the first time, Arthur's, Ford says, oh, it's unpleasantly like being drunk. And so Arthur says, what's so unpleasant about being drunk? And he says, you ask a glass of water and then... Yeah. At the end of it all, he says, I'll never be cruel to a gin and tonic again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I could talk about Douglas Adams for quite a long time. There's there's more to this story than just him because uh, Anthony Reed and, of course, it's Tom Bloody Baker, thank you very much, mm-hmm. being absolutely splendid and wonderful as always. This was the era of the show where 80% of Tom Baker's acting was fondling the TARDIS console. But... What's magical about him in the story is once he gets past all the goofiness, when he suddenly realizes what's going on and he drops his voice and gets serious, it's an incredible 180. 
like when he and Romana are clowning around in the engine room and he drops his voice and whispers the captain is dangerous. That sells the danger. And then, of course, there's his confrontation mm. with the captain in part three, you know, the what's it all for scene. Considering how disengaged he was from Graham Williams and how much he was acting against the script, when you give him a script this good and a co-star as good as Bruce Purchase, he just turns it on. and It's great to watch. It really is. I mean, there's something for the uh, younger audience and there is something for the adults and the more thoughtful teenagers as well. I mean, you know, he walks the plank at the end of episode three, you know. and uh... <laughs> Yeah, that is a stunning cliffhanger. I really like that. And I really, really love the resolution as well, where they're all, all of the, the, the three sort of villains are all laughing. And then suddenly you hear Tom Baker <laughs> laughing in the background behind them. It's just great. And, and again, because it points to what the resolution is and who the ultimate villain is. So it's a really, really clever piece because it really does look like the Doctor has fallen to his death. And yet he's done something immensely clever by using the villain's machinery to to trick them. It's, it's really mm. good. Yeah, the engine room scenes, they were filmed in an actual nuclear power station, weren't they? They were. And they actually had to blow some things up inside a nuclear power station, which is never a good idea. <laughs> Apparently the crew were quite nervous doing that. <laughs> It's the 70s. Everyone, every sci-fi show went to a nuclear power station and set off large explosives. <laughs> so I think we're, we're all fans of this story, it sounds like. Why, why do you think it's not held in such high regard generally, given that it's Tom Baker, it's Douglas Adams? I think I've got two reasons. Number one, and this is exactly what Denise said at the top of the show, there is no novelization. So if you're in the UK, if you're lucky, you see all four parts of the story once. If you're not lucky, you see three or two or less. And then after that, there is no way to experience the story again until reruns start to come around on UK Gold in the mid-90s. So if you're a fan of a certain age, you never get to see the story. You never get to read the story. That's one reason. And then the second reason is this is proto-Douglas Adams, he's still channeling Robert Holmes, and he has all these ideas that just, you know, don't stick on the page. And then you have Douglas Adams goes ahead and gets the lion's share of the credit for writing City of Death. So, it's not even the best Douglas Adams story in Doctor Who. So, number one, not everybody gets to see it. Number two, nobody gets to read it. And then number three, when you think about Douglas Adams and Doctor Who, City of Death comes first. This story comes second or third behind perhaps Shada or the end of Armageddon Factor. So, I think it does start a little bit slowly. I mean, um, the uh, opening scenes with the inhabitants of the planet and uh, Pralix and his family, they are um, they're very stagey. <laughs> and um, I did see David Warwick doing one of those fabulous British farces a few years ago, you know, very much a no sex, please, we're British kind of a thing. And he's, he's very well suited <laughs> to that kind of role. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's that's quite stagey. And 
they often were, weren't they, at the time? But um, once the doctor gets really into the action, once everybody's got their teeth into what they're doing and we've seen the captain and everything else, it really comes to light. But there are some quite stilted scenes along yeah, the I way think, as well. Yeah, I think it probably also, for a long time, um, was sort of cursed by being a, a Graham Williams production. So the Williams years always was the whipping boy of Doctor Who for a long time, that it was just too silly. And this is a Douglas Adams story, so it's funny. And so funny Doctor Who is, we don't appreciate funny Doctor Who, do we? It should be serious and dark and um, all of those things. Uh, J&T came in in the 80s and stopped. So I think it was sort of one of those things where it was just looked down on by being a production in the late 70s. And there's always a perception that the Williams era was cheap and silly. And if you're watching it in that mindset, then you're going to see these huge performances, like the the pirate captain and Mr. Fibuli as his deputy. Um, they're going to put you off, I think, if you're not sort of tuned into what they're doing. Then there's this um, too much canine. There's a fight <laughs> for canine with a robot parrot. A robot parrot? What? what yeah, but that are they is doing? cool. Yeah, Come I on, know. tell me that's I not know. cool. I love it, but I think there are there's still a certain mindset in fandom that can't get past all of these things because they were 15, 16 at the time, and this was not what Doctor Who was for them. All oh, right. Well, I was a bit younger than that. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, what year was this? 78? 78, yeah. So I was nine. Yeah, so, perfect um, age for it. So. I was the perfect age for the Graham Williams era and then transitioning into John Nathan Turner and a little more, little bit more sciencey and stuff. All of that, you know, I fell in exactly the right hole. And mm-hmm. I understand the politics of the situation of the Graham Williams haters, but really it's not justified. No, it not really, at all. Really this isn't. is my favourite era of Doctor Who. I think this is so... It's so wild and imaginative and brilliant in so many ways. Yeah, and two amazingly cool Romanas. Yeah, oh, I'm, we've got to talk about Mary Tam, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. so, so beautiful and cool and perfect and the perfect counterpoint to Tom Baker's Doctor. Yeah, I love the bit when they're having the, the gunfight with the guards and uh, she almost dismissively just uh, just picks up the gun and shoots the guy. Um, <laughs> just you know, the, these are trained guards and and they can't shoot straight. Well, um, they've got these BDSM uniforms, haven't they? They've been in a few unfortunate places. <laughs> <laughs> but she just does it so casually. She just raises the gun, shoots him down. And then, uh, yeah, and then just turns around and calls a cucumber. She's uh, she's terrific. Yeah, she gets one of my favourite lines in the whole story as well when um, the Doctor asks her where she gets her jelly babies and yeah. where she's got the <laughs> jelly babies and he, she turns around, <laughs> same place as you, your pockets, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about, yeah, the, the lack of novelisation being, being something that would, uh, yeah, make it stick in people's minds less. But I think... That's probably absolutely right. I, I would have watched yeah. it when I was pretty young on VHS, and you know, the, the like the, the flying star, uh, flying cars, and things like that. Which I guess sort of Star Wars flying speedboats, really. Yeah, 
Yeah. I suppose Star Wars wouldn't, would we have had Star Wars? We wouldn't have had Star Wars in this country at that point, would we? That was not like a response to the... Oh, uh, no, it would have, I think... It was imminent, um, but it hadn't it, happened. Yeah, um, had it, yeah, it arrived, I think, New Year's Day 78. So okay. this was would have been at the end of 78. So there may have been a small sort of crossover, oh, it, but not in yeah. a big way. Isn't there a story... I'm sorry, there's a story where Tom Baker and Graham Williams go to see Star Wars, maybe in the States, and they turn to each other and say, we're finished, we can't compete with this. And when <laughs> Leslie Schofield uh, filmed The Face of Evil, that was right after his role in Star Wars, and he would have come onto the set during Face of Evil in season 14 and said, guys, guess what I just did? So they would, they would have known about <laughs> Star Wars for sure, since there was a lot of mm-hmm. cast crossover. You know, Pat Gorman doing stunts uh, for each. So th- I know Invisible Enemy feels like an attempt to do Star Wars only, you know, with one twentieth of the budget and one one hundredth of the script. It was definitely in the air, certainly by season 16, right? I remember the story about Tom Baker going to see it, but I thought that was uh, to do with the Scratchman movie script that he was working on that that, that made him think that uh, maybe they couldn't compete rather than the TV show. Well, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons why the Scratch Man script couldn't compete with Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it is wonderful, though. If you haven't heard it, then it's worth your time, definitely, or read it. It's, uh, it's an excellent it's, story. not playing in the same sandbox as George Lucas. No. <laughs> very much not, no. It's very more of a, it's a very British sci-fi yeah, it's a, it? you know, it's closer to the prisoner, really, I think, in a lot of ways. But, mm-hmm. uh, very psychedelic endings and things like that. Yeah, the audiobook of Tom Baker reading, it's great. Mm. Uh, it keeps slipping in things like you keep going, oh, you'll like this bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he has such love for um, the characters of Sarah and Harry as well. Yeah, so the Pirate Planet, I mean, this was the thing, because I had watched it when it was on. But because there was no novelization, it wasn't as crystallized in my memory as the other stories in the season were. And, uh, you know, but it was like, oh, I really want to see it again, especially when I learned more about who Douglas Adams was. So it took a while. Yeah, it was one of those ones when I was growing up that was a mystery because there were brilliant photographs from the story and the pirate captain looked so brilliant as a kid mm. sort of in the photographs he was photographed really well and you just get that little glimpse of him at the end of Logopolis as well which was was sort of quite intriguing but again I had no idea what the story was about I mean I think there was an archive feature in DWM back in the day when it was literally just a synopsis of the story but you miss so much by it just being a dry synopsis you miss all the wit and the the cleverness so you get the beats of the plot but you don't necessarily get the things that make the story really fun we haven't talked about my favorite character yet either mr fibuli when i got my first cat in college we named him mr fibuli after this story <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> and did you call for him in the same way your death will be delayed that sort of thing Uh, cats don't respond well to that kind of malarkey do they well we have uh, you can see smudge on my camera right now and she is not responding to this at all she's like get up and scratch my ears come on 
<laughs> yes, we have a podcast today. Podcast. <laughs> it is good performance though, because everybody else is playing it so big that uh, he, you know, that um, I can't remember the actor's name, but he knows to sort of play it a bit smaller and is mm. stands out for that reason. I think, doesn't he? Because Little uh, Craven, yes. Yeah. Sort of, sort of more, a bit like Colin Jeevans, the sort of role that he plays. Yeah, very much so. He's sort of very much the cringing, oh, no, he's going to get me and I'm I'm just a humble servant and it's all all right. Oh, no. Oh. But there's a real... But actually, I think Mr. Fibuli's death scene is really, really fascinating and really good mm. because you've got... Um, suddenly this sort of huge wave of sadness from the captain who has been, as the doctor said, big and blustering and loud sort of um, up to that point. And then suddenly you realise that there's real affection between the two of them and he's really, really upset by this. And after... He was a good man. After Fibuli dies, the captain takes his glasses and waves them at, at, the, at, the, at the queen, sort of as a threatening gesture, but she doesn't realise what they are. It's a nice little acting moment with the uh, with the glasses. Yeah, it's surprisingly moving, that, isn't it? I, I wish we'd seen a little bit more of the captain when he's not under the Queen's control or when he's he's trying to fight it. It's it's quite a little bit rough at the end, isn't it? There are it? a few moments, aren't there? I think there's a nice moment where the captain and Mr. Fibuli are are reminiscing about their days on the, um, what, what was their ship called? The Fentalis. Is that right? And they're sort of remembering what they did when they were sort of um, riding the universe and holding people up or whatever. And that's that's a really nice scene. I don't know if you guys have read either one of the novelizations. There's the original James Goss book, which is written in a very, very uh, painstaking Douglas Adamsy style. This is from like maybe like, you know, seven or eight years ago and then there's the cut down version that was released under the target banner last year which I don't know if Mark did an episode on the Pirate Planet cut down novelization but in the original which is based on Adams's original scripts and is much longer and the Mentiads are still female and characters have different names in the original like 300 page book there's a scene at the beginning where the captain and Fibuli are looking out the window over the village below and they're just having a quiet moment. And then the captain whispers to Fibuli, are you ready? And Fibuli frowns and nods. And then the captain just turns it on and starts berating him. So it makes it clear very early on in the first novelization that it's all a very carefully orchestrated act between the two of them. And that they clearly are very, very fond of one another. And everything else is for show. That gets lost in the cut-down novelization, which is a lot shorter, though. That scene is gone. If it was New Who, then that would be a very different relationship indeed. <laughs> it probably would be. <laughs> I, yeah, I've, I've only read that longer version um, of James Goss one, but I really enjoyed it. And it, I think they, they sell the, the polyphase Avatron as being much more scary as well, don't they? It's, it's described much more menacingly. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that works a lot better, obviously, than, the, uh, than what we get on screen. Mm. Although I love the way uh, K9 finishes it off. Yeah. And, and manages to carry it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a moment of triumph for him. So this is really good. Uh, I do like the way he's written as the second companion in this story, which is 
was still quite rare at this point, and he plays mm. a really pivotal part. And he gets his own companion in Mueller, who he gets to to go on an adventure through through the Welsh countryside with, and um, sort of explain things to her. And he gets his big fight scene as well. And um, then his batteries run down, and he doesn't do very much at the end. But that's the way with K nine, isn't it? So. Well, yes. Flying car as well, and and I do like the the sort of the death scene that his his last words you can't hear, but the doctor hears, and he thinks can be something really moving, and it's like there's a power cable behind you. (laughs) 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 So yeah, and again, he gets one of my other favourite lines in the story when um, the doctor asks why Romana is doing so well, talking to all the people in the in the town, (laughs) and just. Just turn and just says she is prettier than you, Master, <laughs> and it's, it's really great because neither of the neither the Doctor and and or or Canine would be really sort of notice that kind of thing usually, but it's just yeah, it's so matter of fact and played so well. It's yeah, it's really funny. Do you think character options will ever give us a pirate captain figure? Kind of after I watched this, it was uh, I think because they're on my mind at the moment because we've just got the uh, the giant robot, we've just got the Silurians. Uh, I'm thinking, about what can they do next? Uh, I thought Pirate Captain would be quite a good one. Right it? now, character options is working their way down the bottom of the 2014 DWM poll, and they're only releasing <laughs> <laughs> they're only releasing sets for the stories that everyone hates. For crying out loud, we just got a Warriors of the Deep Triptych. What is it going to take to do the pirate cabin? Is there a Horns of Nymon set yet? Oh, I wish. Not yet, but there should be. Yeah. <laughs> How many Nymons would you get, though? Three! three. I would get three! Yay. I mean, we're going to be getting a Fear Her set and a Twin Dilemma set if they keep this up, so they better do Pirate Planet soon. <laughs> It would make a good action figure because, again, he's a really striking, really striking design. And um, just the sort of cybernetic eye and the arm are really, really good. It's a really nicely done. I think that would be a cracking figure. I'd, I'd go for that. Maybe it's an online exclusive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I don't do the dollies myself, you understand, but uh, I mean, I do look at, you know, when people post pictures of their latest acquisitions and I think, oh, if only my house was dimensionally transcendental. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, uh, you could pair it off with with a figure of the nurse who is the ultimate villain in the story. Um, Again, that's one of the nice things that I like in this story is the slow reveal that she's not she doesn't say anything in part one. She's just there in the background. And then her role sort of gradually increases as the story carries on. And um, I think it's a really nice performance from Rosalind Lloyd as well. She's really good. And she becomes really menacing and horrible at the end. Yes, because it starts off, you know, she's expressing her opinion in a way that usually the nurse of a captain or a senior figure wouldn't do, you know, one of the things I do remember from the series is thinking, oh, she's a bit bold, you know, for a, for a female employee, you know. But, uh, yeah, she had a reason. Yeah, she's giving the captain orders without anybody else being aware that they are orders. Like, she's the one who says you want to investigate the sound of this time machine dematerializing. She's the one who says you want to get Romano to look at the engines because 
she knows what's going on, and she's giving him all the advice that he needs to carry out the plan. But nobody knows that what she's saying is important because she's so deep in the background at that point. It's the it's the actor playing the old version of the queen that I feel really sorry for. That all the other cast come in and say how hideous she is. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, there was a lot of yeah. That's yeah, um, yeah. I mean, speaking as a lot older lady myself, I, I was not too happy with no. that. I mean, I wouldn't like it if people came into the room when I was asleep and started saying things like that about me. You know, that, she was paid an extra fee because they. Um, so that to take out her false teeth, so she looked extra gorgeous, which was brilliant. <laughs> I think it was an extra seventy pounds or something. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was seventy pounds was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not bad if you get to just sit on a throne for for a few hours and do nothing really, have a snooze, yeah. be mm. just on on the just before the moment of your death. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> there forever. <laughs> It's method, darling, method. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just try not to take the dialogue personally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are some absolutely wonderful moments in this story and some great words as well. Obliterable. I'd never heard that before, but uh, not sure if it would work in a Scrabble, but anyway. <laughs> and, um, there's also the point where the captain talks about technology being indistinguishable from magic. And I think, you know, that must have been, that's quite a normal kind of trope these days. You know, that comes up a lot. You know, that came up in Babylon 5. It's often a theme in Doctor Who and other things as well. Um, but I think, was that, the, are there earlier examples of that? Or is that a very famous quote from a very famous person? And I'm showing my ignorance again. Or? I think it was Arthur C. Clarke. Any any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I think that's Clarke's law. If okay. Not okay, so that was uh, where that came from, and it was actually referenced by the captain in the Pirate Planet. So. Yeah, well, Douglas Adams was very well read, wasn't he? Particularly his sci-fi. So he'd have known all of this stuff and be bringing it into his scripts and informing that. Mm. So. But, I mean, I, that passed me by at the time, but I can imagine if I'd been a few years older at the time, that would have been something that would have really captured my imagination, and that's a great way to feed it into, say, a 12-year-old's mind, an idea like that. Yeah, because I think probably the first time I heard that was in Battlefield when uh, the Doctor and Ace are talking about it and they say the, the line about uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable magic, but then the Doctor says... Of course, the reverse is also true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because I don't know how my phone works. Yeah. <laughs> Could be magic, for all I know. The Wikipedia entry for Clark's Law says that he proposed this law in 1973. So if Douglas Adams submits this in 76, oh. that's right hard on the heels of that law coming out. It was bleeding edge when he uh, when Adams puts it in the script yeah. as, as a name check. That's pretty cool. But that, yeah, that does remind me. It's in the books of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series where Arthur Dent ends up on that planet that's sort of pre-industrial, and he thinks, "Well, I can, uh, I can use my advanced technology from from living on twentieth century Earth to sort of progress these people." And then 
he sort of realizes that he doesn't know how anything works, not even a pen. Mm. <laughs> is that when he ends up as the sandwich maker? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. There's literally on, only a sandwich. A sandwich is the only thing that he knows how to do that they haven't invented yet. <laughs> <laughs> and even then, he has to find someone to make him the right kind of knives. Yeah, that's it. And it kind of makes you think, yeah, that that would be me as well. Yeah. <laughs> There was a Doctor Who fanfic online in the late '90s, uh, which mashed up Clark's Law with this with a particular song by the Police. Every little thing she does is sufficiently advanced technology. <laughs> <laughs> like it. So, so where does it sit in the in the key to time season? Rosal, I think for, I think for me, I love this story, but it's probably my fourth favorite. It's hard because I really like all of these stories, so it's really difficult to rank them because sometimes it'll be second, sometimes it'll mm. be fourth, sometimes it'll be third. It sort of moves up and down as I watch them all. So it's it's really hard. I I would find it really difficult to put these stories in order. Mm. Mm. I think I've got such fond memories of Androids of Tara. I think that is my favourite from the season. Um I suppose because it's based on that other story, which name has now completely the prisoner of Zenda. <laughs> the prisoner of Zenda, yeah, it's. Um... But yeah, that is such a beautiful story, and that captured me from day one. And I think my memories of that were a lot stronger than the memories of the pirate planet. So that is number one for me, and probably Power of Crawl. And or Armageddon Factor are at the bottom, but everything else just fits into the middle, I guess. Crawl. I'm going to say this is probably, and of course it goes back and forth. I'm going to say this is third or fourth for me. I mean, Reboss Operation is the best script ever. Robert Holmes surpasses himself in every way. So Reboss Operation is number one. Stones of Blood was a huge influence on my eventual career choice because I eventually became the Megara. So Stones of Blood is right there at number two. <laughs> what you can't see here is that Jason is actually just a, a big ball of lots of twinkling lights. <laughs> I'm a big ball of something. <laughs> <laughs> and then, again, like Denise says, Androids of Tara is amazing in so many ways. So this is probably just a tick below Androids of Tyre for me, but they're virtually neck and neck at third and fourth. Armageddon Factor has a lot going for it, but it also has some pretty big flaws. Um, so that's you know, a pretty decent showing at fifth. And then Power of Kroll, I'm sorry, it's a disaster. It's, it's, it's got to be, I mean, yeah, there's a couple of good lines in Power of Kroll, but everything about that production screams, we don't want to be here. So Power of Kroll is uh, <laughs> easily uh, sixth in the season. My apologies to Joe Ford, for whom it's the greatest story of all time. Although there's a cute, chubby John Leeson playing an actual character as well as Yeah, he's allowed out of the TARDIS for a bit in person, which is nice. That's a a plus in my book. Yes. Yeah, it's the Stones of Blood that is top for me because it's just... uh, Vivian Faye is just the best villainess in the whole world. I love her to bits. And um, clang, I met Susan Engel once and she was marvellous and utterly bemused that anyone loved her for that performance. It was wonderful. (laughs) Um, But yeah, um, 
Yeah. I, I know Pete really, really rates Stones of Blood as well, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, wonderful story. And Beatrix Lehman, oh, she's superb as well. You're up for yeah. yeah, and you've got David Fisher coming in and just understanding Doctor Who right from the word go and just knowing exactly how to write this show. So, yeah, that I mean, I think that's just brilliant. And then it's really between now the Android Tara reboss operation and the pirate planet for what comes next. And any of them could, could be there. So yeah, it's yeah. I just love it all. <laughs> so. Yeah. It, it was a brilliant and very strong season. You know, mm-hmm. the first time there'd been a common thread going through it and um, it held together really well. Um, it was a new concept for doctor who watchers of all ages. And, uh, yeah, it, I've got pleasant memories of watching it at the time and it does keep on giving. I really enjoyed getting the DVD out again, out of my usual sequence and giving it another good watch. And There's always something new to notice in a Douglas Adams script or a Doctor Who production, something you haven't noticed before, like uh, when they're walking through the Gwent countryside and you can actually hear their feet squishing. Yeah, it's very wet. wet. <laughs> <laughs> But it's lovely. I, one of the, the best conventions I've ever been to was a one-day convention which celebrated the key to time and had got people involved with, with the season. And they all spoke so fondly of being in the show at this time. So I think from the Pirate Planet, we had, um, what's her name, who played Mueller, whose name is just Primmy Townsend. That's it. And um, Rosalind Lloyd and David Warwick. And they just did a little panel together. And they were just so enthusiastic and so just delighted to be talking about something that they did for a few weeks in 1978 and happy to be there and sharing their stories. It was, yeah, it was wonderful. Fantastic. And it's so ahead of its time having a season arc, isn't it? It's Yeah, very much so. Uh, since this, since Doctor Who came back, it, it's kind of de rigueur. It, it, it's how modern television works. But no, mm. I, I love it. Reboss Operations, my favourite as well, same as Jason, I think. Um, but like you were saying about the androids of Tara, Denise, I would always read the, you know, every every synopsis or program guy would always mention the Prisoner of Zendra and I never knew what it was. And then probably only read it about 10 years ago. And just thought, I wish I'd found this when I was younger because I absolutely loved it. And I know I would have loved it when I was a kid. It's such mm. a great story. Oh, it's so swashbuckling uh, and wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. So good. And and Rupert of Hensel, the sequel as well, I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, kind of immediately tracked that down after I read The, the Prisoner of Zender. Brilliant. Yeah, I feel like it's it's probably sort of, you know, come out, gone out of fashion a little bit, but... Um, yeah, definitely something I feel like should have been recommended to me uh, in my younger days. The novelizations are coming out later this year in 2022 because David Fisher had done audio-only novelizations for Stones of Blood and Androids of Tara. So those are being released in target form in, in a few months, right alongside Fires of Pompeii and the Zygon Invasion and uh, what else have you. So we'll get to see David Fisher's full ideas behind the scenes for Tara and Stones of Blood. I've heard the Androids of Tara novelization is an audio probably about 10 years ago. and I thought it was a little labored and over the top and a little too Douglas Adamsy, but it's probably going to be a 
be a lot better on the printed page, I would think. Uh, and I haven't heard Stones of Blood at all, so I'm curious what he's going to add to that or what he has already added to it 10 years ago, but I didn't know about. I remember it being very good and very enjoyable to listen to, um, but it's one I need to revisit, so I might do that when the book comes out, or I'll read the book, obviously. So, so yeah, it would be interesting to read those again. Fantastic. Well, we'll be covering them on the Trap One podcast. <laughs> plug, <laughs> plug. <laughs> well, so I think that about wraps it up for... Um our love-in of the Pirate Planet, which is a splendid story. So where can we find everybody on Twitter, Jason? And other places, of course, are available. <laughs> I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. And you can follow me at the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, DR Who Pilgrimage. At the time of speaking, I am in between the Santaran Stratagem and the Poison Sky. And Mark has helpfully obliged by retweeting all my um, posts to his account, so you can follow me uh, on Mark's account as well. Thank you, Mark. Uh, my new solo podcast, uh, which is uh, my side project when I'm not on Trap One, is Doctor Who Literature. My next two guests, because I release an episode every Sunday, are sitting in the room with me right now. So you'll be hearing from Mark uh, this coming Sunday and from Cy the week after that as we talk about the novelizations of the three doctors and the Loch Ness monster and Denise, we got to get you on that show soon too. Well, looking forward to it. And Mark, where can we find you? I'm on Twitter as at Quark McMullis, and as well as Trap One, you can hear me on the Doctor Who Literature Podcast and Maximum Power, the Blake Seven Podcast. That's Trap One underscore Mark at Trap One underscore. So you're you're coming in fresh to Blake Seven, aren't you? Yes, yeah, it's my first time around, so I'm only watching each episode as the podcasts I'm appearing come up. So I've got no no prior knowledge. Um so it's uh yeah, it's been been really interesting. And Sai, where are you? Well you can find me on Twitter at um Sai underscore heart. You can also hear me on many episodes of Maximum Power, the Blake 7 podcast. Um, we've just recorded our episode for Star One last weekend. So now I've just got to go and make 13 episodes of the podcast, which are in raw <laughs> form right now. No pressure. And make everyone sound brilliant, which is not too difficult because they are all brilliant. Um, you can hear me on many episodes now of trap one and on a hamster with a blunt pen knife and several other podcasts including jason's which i'm looking forward to coming back to very shortly i will get reading the Loch Ness monster <laughs> and here i am resident underachiever i am at cup of tea 69 on twitter and i don't really do very much else <laughs> you'll be on Aww. doctor who literature in about four or five months as soon as i have an opening so uh Please subscribe to Doctor Who Literature and listen out for Denise, but listen to every episode until Denise shows up. <laughs> okay, well, that's it from us for this evening. Thank you for listening and uh, hope to see you next time. Goodbye. By the left frontal lobe of the great Sky Demon, have a good night. Yay! Moons of madness! <laughs> <laughs>